0: So if you will turn in a copy of God's Word uh, to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, as we continue our series on this, uh, this great book, this, Colossians was written to a small town and a small church, a small church and a small town, rather, uh, and so it fits our context. And so if you'll turn to Colossians 3, you will read verses 1 through 11. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1,253. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What an amazing gift. Father, by your Spirit, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, give us the anointing of the Holy Spirit that we need, both to the preacher and hearer alike. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You know, there are a great many things that I'm looking forward to about heaven. What do you look forward to about heaven? You know, the very top of the list is, and it should be, Um, the fact that we get to see Jesus we get to be with God where is heaven, what is heaven, heaven is where God lives that's that's what heaven is but you know there there are a whole bunch of other blessings 10,000 beside innumerable ones that we can't even imagine no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him no more pain, no more injustice no more need for fostering, no more drug use, no more abortion or oppression, divorce, relationship problems, no more broken homes, and no need for the police, firemen, ambulances, lawyers, soldiers, and social workers. There will be justice for God's people who have been persecuted for Jesus' name, and every tear will be wiped away. No more cemeteries, no more funeral homes, no more hospitals. All the bad things will be gone. And those things that are good and amazing will be made a thousand times better as we get to see the reality of the things that we get only to see glimpses of here. One of the things I'm really looking forward to, about when Jesus comes, or I die and go to be with him, is not fighting sin and temptation anymore. I'm really tired of that. Fighting sin and temptation, it is the believer's lot. It is the believer's life. Won't it be great not to have our enemy, Satan, seeking to destroy you, your family, to lead you astray, not to engage in the fierce spiritual battle against the sinful flesh that is in every one of us? Paul here calls it the old self or the old man. I'm tired of that. And yet, it's the daily reality for every believer. In fact, if you don't, if you're not fighting sin, then you should know your sin is killing you. John Owen said, "We must be killing sin, or sin be killing us." Great Puritan. You know, until we die or we go to heaven, until we die and go to heaven or Christ returns, this is what the Christian life looks like. You don't arrive when you become a believer; you're saved. But but it's not like all of a sudden everything's easy. In fact, when we become believers, things actually get really hard. We're enabled by the Holy Spirit to fight sin, to have victory over sin, to engage in this battle. It's the only way we can have victory. That we go from being on the wrong side of the battle, following Satan, the the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, to to now being delivered and in God's domain, Christ our Lord and King and Master, our standard bearer. And every day is a fight. A lot of times we pretend like there's not a fight. But that's when the fight is most deadly. Believers, until Christ comes again or we go to be with Jesus, we must work hard to put to death our sinful desires each and every day. But the Christian life is a bit of a paradox. Do you know what a paradox is? Here's a dad joke. It's not a pair of docks on the lake. You like what I did there? it's okay you don't uh rather it's something that has different parts that are seemingly contradictory and yet really the whole thing is true okay so let me give you some examples if i know one thing is that i know nothing right if you know one thing then you don't know anything if you know nothing then you don't know anything or yogi Berra. you know these are great aren't they nobody goes there anymore it's too crowded The other one, the future ain't what it used to be. Paul gives us a paradox in this passage. In verse 3, he says, For you have died. You have died. And then in verse 5, he says, Put to death. How, How does that work? If we have died, how can we put anything to death? There's nothing to put to death if it's really dead. If we have died in Christ, if we are in Him, who we once were has passed away, and yet we still have to put it to death Christ has given us victory over sin and guilt and yet we still struggle with these things with sin and guilt he has broken the power of sin and satan that he used to have over us and yet every day is a fight you know this paradox these two seemingly contradictory things um, At the same time, it gives us reason to be joyful and to tell us that things are really deadly serious. Things are better than we realize. Things are so much better than we realize. The blessings we have in Christ, we can hardly even begin to scratch the surface of who we are in Christ. And yet, even though things are better than we can ever imagine, they're also much more serious, much more dangerous, and much worse than we realize. Because just as we have amazing blessings in Christ, the seriousness of our fight with sin cannot be overstated. We're no longer who we once were. We are in Christ. We have died with Christ. And we have already put off the old man. And what this means is that as believers, we can have victory in the fight against sin. Sin and temptation feel so strong, but you should know that Christ has won the victory for you. You can say no as the Holy Spirit gives you power to do so. There's nothing, nothing that can hold you in bondage long-term if you turn to Jesus and get help that you need. Perhaps it means availing yourself of your brothers and sisters in Christ and getting others to help you. You know... We have victory in Christ. So that's the good news. The other thing is that God takes the sins that we so easily tolerate in our lives so much more seriously than we do. In fact, this text says that the wrath of God is coming against these things. That's present tense. Paul does not say the wrath of God will come. It will. This text says the wrath of God is currently coming. This is like Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1. Uh, that the wrath of God is being is being revealed against all ungodliness. For Christians this wrath has been poured out on Christ, praise God. There's no more wrath for believers. But it does mean that God takes our sins so seriously that it So, this new thing has happened to us. It has been put off and our new self has been put on, but we are still called to put sin to death. How do we reconcile these two things? There's a theological term, and I will say it, and then I'll explain what it is. It's progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is basically uh, becoming more and more uh, like Jesus. Bob, what's what's going on, bro? Did it die? I think it might have died. I never turned it on. No, the battery died. I'm sorry, brother. Okay. It's a nice intermission. Uh, we're talking about Jesus. Progressive sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more and more like Jesus, right? This is what happens when we become believers. God doesn't just leave us who we are. He declares us to be righteous and holy before Him. and then He grows us spiritually, enabling us more and more to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Now, that sanctification is progressive because it takes a lifetime. In fact, we don't finish it in this life. It ends at our death, and then we wake up in heaven perfect. Oh, Lord, may that day come soon. The Christian life is one of struggling with sin, putting it to death as we rely on Christ, becoming more and more like Jesus, progressive sanctification. This is what the Christian life looks like, and that's what Paul's talking about. Look at verse 10. We have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It is being renewed, present tense, ongoing, is being renewed after the image of its creator. If you're a Christian, God is renewing you. You are a work in progress. You are loved and accepted and righteous before him. You are his child, and he is working on you from the inside out. And as you continue to walk with Jesus every day, you'll become more and more like him, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold him with unveiled face. Okay, so there's great news. You're a new person. And because of that, we have to take sin seriously. Why? Because God does. God is a holy and righteous judge. He is a holy and righteous God. And if you are in Christ, then he has judged his son for you in your place. And yet we tolerate so easily the sins for which Jesus had to die. You know, Jesus' blood is precious. Precious doesn't mean just, oh, that's lovely. Precious means unique and costly, one of a kind. And when we take sin lightly, we treat that which is precious and has been spilled for us as something everyday and normal. We inherited, after the death of my great-grandmother, some of her king richard sterling silver forks knives spoons you know we keep them in a in a drawer lest we use them uh... (laughs) you know how that works right however we did pull out some salad forks and little itty bitty little dessert spoons uh... for the kids when they were little because they were the perfect size for them well one day i was in the backyard and i was covering up the sandbox and i looked down and there was a sterling silver king richard dessert spoon and it had been there for months now here's the thing i looked it up online this weekend do you know how much they they retail for brand new two hundred and ninety nine dollars and ninety five cents right we put it in our lock and key uh (laughs) right we we quickly got out of the sandbox so that we might treat something precious and costly with the respect it deserves yet so often we, we are so quick to guard and to safeguard those things which are materially costly while treating that which is spiritually precious with very little um, focus and um, respect. Jesus loved you so much that he would die for you. And because of the good news of the gospel, now we are called to do something about the sins which we face. Now, now if you're a perfectionist, you're you're probably going to tend to pretend like that sin's not there. uh, Because if you admit that it's there, then all of a sudden you don't have your life together. If, If you're a moral relativist, you'll say, as long as my sin is not as bad as X, Y, and Z then it really is okay. Now the world will encourage you to downplay its seriousness or even to accept it as okay. You feel that way? Oh that's fine. That's just who you are. You know the commercials, you know just be yourself, don't be yourself. <laughs> it's terrible advice. Be who you are in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. Now if God's given you gifts of working with your hands, go do that. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about spiritually. Don't don't follow your sinful dreams. Follow Jesus' dreams for you. The thing is, when we deal with sin in order, if we're going to ever have freedom from it, we've got to call it what it is. And I'm not talking about other people. right? It's, I love talking about other people's sin. Don't you? It's great. It's fun. It makes me feel so much better about myself. I read the Ten Commandments, and I thought of you today. Right? There's no freedom there. There's a speck in a brother's eye, a sister's eye, while there's this log that's 10 feet long sticking out of your own. In order to deal with sin, we first must say, "I am a sinner. My sin is named X. I need help. Please forgive me, Lord." And I receive your forgiveness. We are called to deal with particular sins particularly not just lord forgive me my sins that's a good prayer comma and they are called these if you pretend if i pretend we don't have a problem with sin we will never have victory over it ever are you pretending are you so busy have you made yourself so busy so you can ignore and be distracted from the turmoil that is in your heart, and your relationship, and your home, that doesn't end well. In Christ, you have the victory you need. In Christ, you are secure. And because of those things, you are now free to say, yes, I struggle with, I need help with, please forgive me for. Because your salvation is not on the line. Who you are is not on the line. It's okay to say, I really don't have it all together because none of us do. It's a facade, and it's a lie. And it perpetuates a lie in others when you tell people, hey, I'm doing great, thank you very much. While on the inside, you're crumbling. Jesus stands ready to help you and to give you the victory that you already have in him. So Jesus says through his word in verse 8, excuse me, verse 5, put it to death. and verse 8, put them all away. These are strong words. It doesn't say tolerate. It doesn't say flirt with your sin. Like that cobra in the bed, run and kill it. Paul gives us what's called a vice list. You'll find them throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. In fact, they were throughout ancient pagan texts. Um, they aren't meant to include every sin, so if you don't feel particularly convicted by any of these, then you're okay. That's not what's going on here, right? Um they're, they're meant to specifically deal with what's going on in that situation. And the reason why Paul's going to begin with sexual sins is because the Colossians were living in a culture much like our own, uh, one that is over-sexualized, hyper-sexualized, is not just uh, with the presence of perverse sexuality, but celebrates it and delights in it. That, that was the Colossian uh, culture from which these believers were delivered. And so, you know, when you're converted out of that, all of a sudden those temptations don't just go immediately away. It's a progressive sanctification thing where you're fighting temptation. God gives you victory over it, and Christ is applied to you in salvation and your conversion, and now it's worked out in your life as the Holy Spirit works in you. So verse 5 tells us, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These first four dealing with sexual sins really cover the whole gamut of what the seventh commandment of not committing adultery is meant to cover. He begins with this word in Greek, pornea, uh, sexual immorality, and it's, um, it's the word we get pornography from. And it's really a blanket term for any kind of sexual act outside of the marriage bed and any kind of a relationship, whether sexual or not. The impurity, passion, and evil desire, which come after this phrase, uh, really encompass all those sinful thoughts that we struggle with and affections and lusts and desires of the heart and the soul. Uh, you know, um, there's not a lot of wiggle room here. I mean, Paul just kind of keeps heaping on words. Uh, and that's, that's something that we all struggle with one way or another. Um, you know, let's stop and think for a second. We all live in a culture like the Colossians. It's incredibly over-sexualized. It's worse, though, now because we have so much access to it. And so I just want you to stop and think, um, knowing that you're secure in Christ. How are you doing in this area? Is there anything you need to tell your wife or your husband? If Jesus were here right with you in bodily form, what would he say about the TV that you watch? The movies that you like or the streaming services that, uh, that you subscribe to? Or if you were right there watching your phone with you as you scroll through, would you would you cringe when something else comes up on TikTok or Snapchat that you know you shouldn't see? Or are you viewing things intentionally you shouldn't? Y'all, there, there's freedom from those things. There is. Come talk to me. Let's let's struggle through this together, right? Let's talk. But the first step is saying, yeah, that's that is sin. Lord, help me to kill it. Help me to put it away from me. It's not where I'm the best, because Christ died for these things. Paul then shifts to materialism. Uh, Materialism and sexuality are actually really closely tied. It's the same kind of appetites, just in different directions. It's it's wanting something that really doesn't belong to us or shouldn't belong to us. There's more than we should have. Uh, It it means being consumed by uh, status or... Uh, the stuff that other people have, you know, the car that you love, the, the, um, the house that you must have, or, you know, when your car gets to that magic number of, is it three or four or five or six, seven years? When is, when is that point for you when you've got to have the new one, even though you have 20,000 miles on your car, right? When is that point? When is enough enough? A lot of times it's hard to know, but my heart knows it when I'm consumed with something, And Paul says, you know, the things that consume us mentally, those are the things that we worship. Commentator Kent Hughes says this, materialism is the true religion of thousands of confessing Christians today. That's our true religion. It's kind of like being in Tuscaloosa or in Auburn on a Saturday. There's more worship on a Saturday than there is on Sunday. right? You know that's true. He goes on to say, uh verses 8 through 9 to deal with relational sins but now you must put them all away anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another as he makes this shift from the sexual and sensual and materialistic sins now he's going to shift to the relational sins you know our sin it's never private it might be hidden but it's never private it, it, it affects everything around us. It's like if, you, um, if you're making a big pot of grits and you put four or five drops of strychnine in it and you mix it up and you say, well, I'm just going to eat this part over here that doesn't have the strychnine in it. That didn't work. It, it affects the whole thing. And this is our sin. We, we don't have compartmentalized sins. We think we do. And if I can, I'm just okay over here. I'm not going to really deal with that. I love that one. And it's not going to affect my relationships with others. Y'all, you know, that, that's, that's, that's not true. I've seen it in my own life. Um, And so he he pulls out these relational sins of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk and lying to one another. These first two words of anger and wrath, they actually deal with different things. The first one refers to that anger or indignation that slowly builds, you know, the, the one that takes weeks and months and you just keep ruminating on it and all of a sudden it becomes part of who you are and you wake up and you're just really angry or bitter against somebody the second one is when you blow up you know when someone cuts you off in traffic not that i ever do that you know and uh and you just you just explode you know how dare they do that i take it so personally even though they don't know i'm even there you know that that's the second one both are sin slander and malice you know malice is not just uh thinking bad about someone but but wishing them ill you know when when you think of someone you think about them with contempt They're less than human, they're less than me, right? How dare they act like this? They must be, they're an awful person and I I don't want what's good for them. And slander is talking bad about them to others. Um, You know, the obscene talk here that's mentioned probably isn't talking about sexual language. Uh, It can go either way, but from the context, it seems to be talking about abusive language out of these kind of other sinful anger emotions. You know, when you blow up and you're abusive verbally, that's not okay. Not to your children, not to your parents, not to your spouse. They're they're really, if someone's in danger, you yell. There might be an occasional time where you've got to get really stern. But y'all, the yelling's got to stop. yelling's got to stop. There's no place for that in the home. A lot of times we will fall into what he says here about lying. You know, we begin to craft our own narratives. You know, the thing about lying is sometimes we don't even intentionally start out to lie. We start thinking about the situation in a way that is, we massage it so we look a little better. And then we just kind of keep massaging it. And then soon we've crafted this narrative that really has no bearing on reality of what has happened. It's so deceptive. So let's... Let's ask some hard questions. Are there any relationships in your life that instead of being defined by love are instead characterized by sinful anger? Do you feel malice towards someone? If they've wronged you, right or wrong, real or unreal, um, it's still not okay. Okay. Jesus says to love our enemies. Now, we're realistic. We call sin, sin. We deal with it. We ask them for, you know, to repent. You know, all those things are true. But my righteous anger usually lasts about five seconds, maybe six on a good day. And I immediately launch into the sinful stuff. Do you feel malice? Do you feel bitterness towards your spouse, towards your child, to your parents, to a neighbor, to a friend? Put it away, kill it. That's what Jesus says here. You're able to kill it because Jesus loves you, and He has given you His Holy Spirit to be able to say no to those things. And it's okay to say, You know what? I really am struggling, and I need help from a brother and sister in Christ. That's what He's given the church for because that, that's the reality of our text. It, it ends with this. Uh, verse 11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. See, when we become believers we accept the free gift of salvation as we repent of our sins and ask Jesus to save us and receive the adoption as sons of God as we receive justification being declared righteous before God pardon for all that we have done what an amazing moment when we trust in Jesus it changes everything and part of that salvation is we aren't saved alone we are saved by Christ alone but not saved alone. We're saved together. As brothers and sisters in Christ, there's this new community to which we belong that has stronger bonds even than blood because we will spend eternity together in heaven and the barriers of race, of class, of backgrounds, of colors, all those go away because of Jesus and the spilt blood that he did on our behalf. And we will spend forever in heaven. So what are you looking forward to about heaven? I'm looking forward to this fight being over. We have victory in Christ, and it's a hard fight every day. We must fight it as we look forward to Christ's return. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we are secure in Christ and that you love us despite of our sin. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to take our sin seriously, that we would kill it lest it be killing us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.